This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. I'm Noam Allen. I'm the chief brand strategist at Imagine Media. You probably know us from our brands like Daquan with tens of millions of followers. So satisfying, which is the best satisfying content on there. And we reach Gen Z in all of these great places. And I'll tell you what really excites me and what I love about content is to me, content is like this great empty vessel. And it's a, a way for people to connect in that vessel. So if brands are trying to reach a particular audience, they can do that but you've got to put the right thing in there. So it's finding that right thing to make that vessel not just an empty box, but something somebody wants to open up and spend time with. From New York City, you're listening to Content Is Your Business. Conversations with industry leaders and influencers covering the strategy and innovation of brand storytelling. I'm Mark Rako. Uh, I'm the CEO of Mouth Media Network, and I'm filling in here for Amber, Ritesh, Natasha, and Michael, all of whom cannot join us today due to the, the various demands of their careers. Uh, but you're stuck with me, and I'm hoping we're going to have a great conversation. I'm pretty sure we are because our guest, Noah Mallon, the chief of brand strategy for Imagine Media, and uh, as often happens before... Uh, we actually start rolling. We end up having a great conversation. I say, stop. Let's keep it for the show because we're, we're enjoying it so much. And I'm feeling you're in for a great conversation. Noah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right. Uh, you look to me physically, like, like as I take you in as a person, uh, I, I would quickly guess you're in the creative creative world. I would not be shocked if you came to me and told you you were a, a, a narrative film director. <laughs> I just You strike me with... With that aura. And um, so so my question to you to start out with, tell me what the imagine in imagine media means now, as opposed to, say, the first day someone named the company. Yeah, so uh, it's a great question. And we were joking around actually before about when we write out Imagine, it has no vowels. So yeah. there was a big vowel movement and <laughs> we lost its IMGN, but it is Imagine. And I think the name is embodied in the way the company kind of developed because we have these two brilliant co-founders who started out living in the Vine house. I don't know if you know what the Vine house was. Uh, so when Vine is a platform, mm -hmm. the short video platform first mm -hmm. started, yep. there was this house in LA on Vine Street where all of the major Vine creators lived. Oh, Now, wow. our co-founders, not knowing this, just happened to 
get a place in the Vine house. And they were building a social listening platform. Wow. Nothing to do with influencers, but started to meet all of these incredible creators and said, wow, I love what these people are doing. And they started to represent those folks. And as Vine... Be, you know, began to shut down, helped them transition from Vine to places like Instagram and Snapchat and use the social listening tool that they were developing to find more creators like that. That became kind of the birthplace for this great company that we have now where we're, we're publishing channels like Daquan. We have uh, So Satisfying. And when we start a new vertical, like we just went into this um, kind of health and lifestyle vertical, it's often because we're using our our um, data to understand, oh, Gen Z is talking much more right now about healthy living. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity for us to meet that demand and that conversation. So without sounding, thank you. So with, without sounding um, aloof, if you will, or uninformed, <laughs> yeah. can you unpack a little bit why Gen Z needs to be talked to in a, or communicated with yeah. in a specific manner and why a company, a brand might actually need your your collaboration, your partnership in order to achieve that uh, more effectively? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because in a previous life, before I did this, I was actually on the agency side. Okay. So I was at Group M with Wavemaker. We had major clients like Ikea, Church and Dwight, you know. And Some of the small companies. Yeah, little companies you may never have heard of, right? And what we found is, you know, often they would say, we want to reach millennials and young people. Yeah. And we started having these conversations where I'd come in and I'd say, well, how young do you think the youngest millennial is? I don't know if you know the answer to this. Do you know? The youngest millennial right now? I, I, I don't know. 30? So, uh, well, they're, they're a little bit younger than that. But the, the, the talent of millennials now, 24, 25. Oh, okay. Right? So that's still young. But it's not who these folks had in mind. Right. And the truth is there are real differences in millennials and Gen Z. And if you truly want to reach a audience that's below the age of 25, let's say, you know, 14 to, to 25, you can't rely on the same things that work with millennials who now are having kids or they're in their third or fourth job, sometimes at the same time. It really requires a different way of thinking. If millennials were the first digital generation, mm -hmm. Gen Z is the first mobile generation. They're a vertical screen generation, and that's uh -huh. a different way of communication. It really is because it really takes – I know because I'm I'm really not a Gen Zer. I'm very far from it. I understand how to use a vertical screen, and I know <laughs> I know when it, it it is essential. But I still gravitate towards that panoramic landscape yeah. view that I grew up meant great content yeah and i find it interesting by the way do you know anything about why that decision was made that a phone was supposed to be vertical versus horizontal <laughs> do, you, do you know what yeah. i mean like like yeah. in other words someone said this is this is the way we're going to do it now because they, they could have gone i guess with it horizontal and that's the way we shot things i mean i i like to think that this was an aesthetic decision that was probably made in the headquarters of the device manufacturers yeah, right perhaps, yeah. and you know steve jobs and the folks at apple were certainly are like a content first group of people so i think they're very oh, cognizant of thinking yeah. about making sure when you turn the screen on its side that the screen would resize for the device. Yeah. But the truth is, if you're asking people to take an extra step, you have drop-off no matter what. Yeah. 
And if you need to resize that screen, because the natural way of holding the phone is going to be in that vertical way, uh, if you have to go to horizontal, it just gets lost. So it, it just requires a different way of thinking. Uh, but it also means uh, if you're producing for vertical first, like we are, thinking about things like if you have more than one person in a shot. Right. It's just a completely, you know, and you really can't do that. You have to pan yeah. or you do um, like a split screen. Right. And you have to find creative ways yeah. to tell stories that with a horizontal screen could be told with a different kind of shot. Interesting. So uh, how does that not connect with millennial? How does millennial thinking differently about it? Because they're still the digital generation yeah. or, or adapted yeah. generation. Why are they not automatically gravitating to that way since they still grew up with cell phones? Yeah, so they and smartphones. Yeah, so they they do have behaviors that are like Gen Z, but they're more willing to switch back and forth. Millennials are still what I used to call the best screen available generation. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind that is, yes, you'll watch something or look at something on your phone, but then in your living room, you still have the TV mounted and you're going to, if you can, get that content up on the TV gotcha. screen and use Roku or something else like that. What's interesting is Gen Z, even when they have the option. They're going to be curled up in the corner of the couch watching their phone. Yeah. Or they'll be uh, on, you know, the subway or wherever they are. And they're perfectly fine, you know, which, look, I'm Gen X. So to me, the thought of watching, you know, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on my phone is like, no, why would I ever do that? But, you know, for Gen Z, that's, that is their primary screen. Interesting. So uh, so let's uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about, we kind of talked about how you help brands connect with the Gen Z thinking and how to deliver content to them effectively and, and have, you know, conversion from that. Let, let's expand that a little bit about what actually Imagine does in its full operation. You mentioned two of the clients or two of the things that you do. What's the scope of work that you do? Yeah, so it's really interesting. We have a number of clients, so we work with almost all the major record labels. Uh, when they have new songs coming out, we're able to match the audience we have. Like, for instance, our Daquan channels are really hip-hop oriented. They over-index with, with fans of really anything new coming out in the hip-hop world. So it's a great place when something new is coming out for us to help promote that. And often what we'll do is we'll uh, either create uh, meme content, and Daquan is really steeped in meme culture, and we can talk about that in a moment, and tying that to this record release that might be coming out. And I say record release, we're trying to actually get people to stream in some place like Spotify. Can I interject one quick yeah, thought please. there? We can talk about the meme thing. So when you have a, 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 a something that's steeped in meme culture, yeah. does that make it a very natural transition into TikTok? Yes and no. So it does in the sense that TikTok is a great place to discover what creators are doing, and they make it really easy to share that around. In fact, when TikTok was launched, we were one of the launch partners. Remember, it was Musical.ly, and then they became TikTok. Oh, okay. And they needed people to know, hey, there's this thing. It's TikTok. It's not Musical.ly anymore. And what we were able to do, we work a lot with influencers and that same network that our co-founders built up in the early days, we've grown and expanded. How can we let people know what's happening there? Because TikTok has all this great content. We were able to take some of the trending content from TikTok, post it in places like Instagram, post it in places like Snapchat, and that drove new users to TikTok. 
So those are the kinds of things that we're able to do. So it is a very friendly environment. And when we think about where memes are born, it's almost like the birthplace of memes. What's the where, where do they get born? They get born in places like Twitter. They get born in places like Reddit. And now TikTok is becoming a huge place where memes are born. I did hear a, a, a digital content expert uh, that works on um, big live shows that talk about TikTok as sort of the next evolution of meme culture. Yeah. And that was the reasoning for my for my my question. I really appreciate your answer. L- let me let me sidestep this all this a little bit but still circle back to it. From your perspective in the work that you're doing with Imagine, Noah, where do you think brands right now, even if they're aware of TikTok, even if they're um, um, aware of the kind of work that you're doing, even if they know about Gen Z, where do you think the biggest misstep right now in general is that you, you you sit with your head in your hands and you say, oh my God, if only you just did this, you, you're just missing it. What do you think? What do you think most brands are just missing? I think, the, well, there are two things. And if uh, I can be specific to TikTok. Of course. So one is I think brands tend to, and agencies do too, look at an emerging platform like TikTok and they say, well, let's test it. Let's test and learn. And what you end up doing is you kind of screw yourself because you do something too small to be impactful. And invariably you come back and say, "Eh, nobody noticed. Well, nobody noticed because you have this very like, let's dip a toe in the water approach. And often you're not really going to see how impactful a platform like TikTok can be if you just kind of dip your toe in the water. And related to that, you know, even brands that are building out their brand presence, they figured out one of the most important things there that we touched on, right? Which are TikTok is a playground for creators who are creating all this great stuff. And what we've seen some brands do is they'll partner with these creators to then create content for their branded channel but they don't tie it back to the creator's audiences. So they're getting this great content, but they're not growing the way they could be. And most importantly, they're not registering within TikTok's very powerful algorithm the way they could be because they haven't asked those creators to also post on their creator channels as well and do cross-posting. It seems simple, but a lot of brands are missing the boat on that, and then they're missing the opportunity to actually grow into it. All right, we're going to dive a little deeper in that in a moment. Sure. But first, uh, as is common and a nice tradition on this show, our guest often brings a snack for all of us to share. Right now, it's me and Noah. (laughs) We're the people in the room. Uh, We get to benefit from this. Uh, It's a great chance to break bread. It's a chance to learn a little bit about uh, our guest. Uh, Like many of our guests, Noah has been kind enough to take the time and energy to pull something together. I'd love to know, Noah, what you brought and why. Uh, I see here, just to let people know, three small plastic containers. I think they're plastic, sitting on top of each other, very multicolored, and a small paper bag with what I'm guessing has some sort of confection or pastry in it. So I'm dying to know what we are in for and why. So good guess. Uh, First, I'll tell you what's in the paper bag and why. So um, I went by uh, Milk Bar on the way over here. Which I have never been to. Well, it's a very dangerous place, I can tell you. But what I like about Milk Bar is, and for those of you who don't know, it's really a kind of um, mix and match hybridization of flavors. So they do things like they ha- you can get cereal milk 
And it's like milk that has already been pre-flavored by cereal. And I don't know about you, but that's one of my favorite things when you eat like a bowl of cereal, right? So I have these marshmallow cookies from there, and it's marshmallow cornflake cookies. And it's that kind of mashup. When I think about meme culture and the way – and not just meme culture, but also satisfying content, which we'll talk about in a minute, it ties back to this idea of – taking things and mashing them up and recontextualization. Yeah. And to me, this, what Milk Bar does is they recontextualize food experiences in the same way that imagine we recontextualize content from a meme perspective. And it even to me ties back to art and music. If you think about one of my inspirations from a content perspective is uh, Andy Warhol. And I think his way of looking at the world uh, starting from like a copywriter's point of view and a, and a you know commercial artist's point of view, and then flipping it on its head and saying, "Guess what? This is fine art too." Yeah. I love that, and I think that that kind of works its way through all of this. So the jars that you asked about, one of the things that we do at Imagine is we don't look at content now, um, especially for Gen Z, as just being video content or audio or anything like that. It's also physical. So one of the things that we started because we saw the response to this in our satisfying channels and so satisfying was we actually started making our own slime. And this is not to eat, but this is a snack so, uh, for the senses. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I bought this for we you. We meaning imagine. Imagine. So we, we actually slime. own a company called Moon Cotton. Oh, my God. We gosh. have a slime factory in Brooklyn. We sell this stuff. That's it's on e-com. Fantastic. We're sold out of the winter collection, but we're working on the spring collection. So I bought you both one of our winter collection, which is Yum Yum Bubble. And what you'll find with this is. Are these edible? They're not edible. Okay, that's Do okay. not just, try to eat just, this. Just but oh my gosh! So to yep. smell this, it's called Yum Yum Bubble, and oh my gosh, it's bubble. It, it it tastes like the bubble gum you get in a pack of baseball cards. Yeah, it has. It really has a smell like that. Yeah, we have experts. We call them our slime chefs. Believe it or not, oh God, who are coming up with the smell, and then <sighs> the feel of it is going to feel a little bit like that too. Oh my god! So. We also these are prototype flavors. I think this one might be kind of a. Can, can you make these therapy. so that people can um, hold them in their hands and disinfect yeah. their hands with it? Oh no, unfortunately, <laughs> but you know I love that idea. Like we can should make them so that they're instantly disinfecting. Can you imagine? That'd be so great. these are both new flavors that are tied to our so satisfying channels. Are, are these going to be branded a, a, a CPG item, or are we, these just for people we, to enjoy internally that are? No, no, no. We sell this as a direct to consumer item. Whoa. So we have an e-com site where we sell this. We're also selling T-shirts. So when we think about our brands and we think about content. It's not just about enjoying, you know, the content from this is what I see on my phone. The other interesting interesting thing about Gen Z is they do enjoy the idea of having the, you know, embodying these brands in different and new ways. And I think if you look at a brand like Nike, they do this kind of thing all the time. And we realize that with both Daquan and So Satisfying and some of our other brands, we have these e-com extensions that take the content and turn them into physical manifestations of what those brands are. You know, that makes so much sense, of course. Uh, It's... It makes me think of, I don't know if this is an appropriate jump or not, but it makes me think of advertising content that doesn't work is when it feels like it's keeping you from the entertainment. Mm, uh You have to bear through it and endure it in order to, which is one of the problems a lot with, to me, with programmatic 
advertising because you see literally the same advertisement especially if you binge watch something you may literally see it 50 times or whatever and eventually it's annoying it's not just reinforcing the brand so my point is is some of the greatest advertising, which of course is, as we've mentioned on other episodes of the show, one of the reasons why Super Bowl commercials work so well is because they they are themselves an extension of the entertainment. Yeah. So this to me is, even when you're not with us, we can be touching you. We can yeah. be connected with you. There's a, a sensory reverberation yeah. of of being connected with you. And, and for people who don't know what this really connects to when I talk about satisfying content, that's a category that is this growing category of content types. Most people who know it might know it through ASMR where you are watching somebody comb hair and you hear the sound of the comb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? That's a category of satisfying content. Right. We do a whole set of things that involve slime and that involve processes, wow. involve 3D animation. And um, what's really interesting about it is the role that it plays in people's lives uh, is very sensory. And it becomes not just content that you think of as something that you watch and hear, but it actually has an effect on people physiologically as well. Yeah. Uh, to the extent that when you think about there's that app um, that's out now, I think, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it, but it's basically a wellness app. And they're incorporating this kind of content into that app. We've actually been talking to mental health organizations mm-hmm. about how we can incorporate the satisfying content into what they're doing to help people with trauma. Because uh, we can see in the data about when people are looking at our satisfying content and how they look at it, that often it's right before bedtime. Hmm. And they're actually using it to help fall asleep. It's the soothing, repetitive nature of it. And it's sometimes the first thing they – when they wake up. Just for some people, Uh, absolutely. Sometimes, many times. And so how do you you put a start to someone's day – affect their wellness as well. Yeah, and start in kind of a chill, yeah. like ready, ready for anything day. And like especially in these times, look, Gen Z is – people talk about this with millennials and saying, well, they're under stress in a way that other generations haven't been. For Gen Z, it's like that times two. And if you think about all of the things that they are looking at as, you know, their future, everything from climate change to kind of, you know, all of the crazy environmental (laughs) things that are going on right now, what's happening in politics, all of it for Gen Z really impacts them. You know, again, they're the first generation. Millennials, in some cases, had to learn this. But for Gen Z, they're the first generation that really grew up with the idea of, like, having active shooter drills in the classroom. That really impacts people's mental health and wellness and the way they look at the world. So having content not just as kind of like an escape but as a soothing element is increasingly important for for these people. I would imagine humor enters into this thinking process. So uh, coming up, you're going to hear Noah share some thoughts on how Imagine and Noah thinks about humor in the content that is involved with right after this. Hi, I'm Mark Rako. Let's talk candidly for a moment. You have a company to run. You can't shake hands with your customers. Your employees now all work from home, and virtually every part of your business has changed since yesterday. How do you deal with the impact on your organization? Manage a rapidly changing supply chain. 
respond to the needs of clients and employees in crisis, all with an eye on the bottom line. In the COVID-19 Business Playbook, top experts from a variety of relevant fields call out the crucial plays you need to succeed in the face of this unanticipated crisis. Mouth Media Network's Strategy Update Series is your go-to guide for moving forward, mitigating risk, and leading your business through to tomorrow in the face of whatever new normal arises. Strategy Update COVID-19 Business Playbook. Available wherever the best podcasts are found, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Noah, I'm still chewing. <laughs> that is that is a great piece of uh, cookie there, or whatever. I think that's the mark is. of a good cookie if you have to really chew to get all the different flavor notes out of it, right? I know. I, it's, a, it's a nice bouquet. It's a, <laughs> right. It's a, I, uh, hints of elderberry. Yeah. No, no, no elderberry. Just um, there's like a toffiness to it a little bit that's really. Uh, and the way the marshmallows combine with the chocolate, it, it kind of creates its, really, its own taste. Yeah. It's really quite good. You know, I'm, I'm quite confident that um, – I literally gained a pound as I chewed that, but I think it was worth it. I gained a pound looking at them. <laughs> I gained a pound looking at you looking at them. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. So humor. Let's talk humor. Let, let, let's talk humor because I think generally there are only two types of advertisements. Let's, let's look at advertisements because quite frankly, advertisements is – one of the principal ways that any brand gets their message out, obviously. So advertisements or any marketing message, you know, the ones we remember typically are those that are very funny and clever and the ones that just crush us with our heartstrings. You know, the Native American coming out of the river and looking at the trash and with a single tear down face. The um, Budweiser uh, horses after 9-11, you know, these great iconic ads that are just like, oh, we remember those. They stay with us. Uh, the the Coca-Cola, uh, I want to – they're all on the hillside. Right, I'd like to buy, like the, to buy the Coke, Coke and they're all in Don Draper's yeah, kind of ex- meditating ex- afterwards. Exactly. Right? exactly. Yeah. So, so that, you know, those, those – those stay with us, and then obviously the really funny ones, you know, where's the beef and many other ones over the years. I don't know why that's the first one I thought of, but humor is one of those two ingredients. And quite frankly, the ones we remember from the Super Bowl are the funny ones. Those are the ones usually that catch our attention and get the most the most attention uh, in the media. How does your organization, and, and maybe you personally as a creative person, how do you think about humor as you approach a brand, as you think, even from the first time you sit with a brand and say, okay, do we do something funny with them or, or not? And then as you extend out to the different ways that that content is delivered, whether it be through social, whether it be through other channels, how do you think about the different way that humor can be, and here's the key question, how it can be executed mm. given, number one, the different amount of time that particular social channel may allow? Um, so how long you have to tell a joke? Are there going to be different versions of telling the, quote, joke or the story, uh, you know, that changes where the punchline is? And so, so how does the ideation process come about from both a creative standpoint and a strategic standpoint? 
Yeah, well, it, what's great about having um, so many of our sites being steeped in meme culture is that, you know, humor and memes are inextricably linked. And it, it happens in a lot of different ways. So when we're thinking about working with a brand and helping them integrate into that culture, some of it, if we're working, you know, we've worked with um, companies like Netflix stars and other you know media companies like that they themselves have great content but we want to recontextualize what they have so that it works in a meme context and we can kind of find those moments in their existing content that lend themselves to that quick hit of humor that makes somebody want more so that's one way to go okay but the other is finding the way people really talk and think about the world, finding the memes that bring that to life. And that's really what we do organically on, on you know, platforms like Daquan every day. And then having brands be part of that. And that often can be one of the most effective ways to bring what a brand has to say to life. And um, one of the interesting things I find with meme culture is often it's the repetition of, you know, if you think about where, you know, what comedians will tell you now is it, part of the evolution of comedy has been you have more comedians who are going down this path of you find a joke and then you hammer and hammer and hammer it to the point where it goes from being really funny to almost not being funny at all anymore. And then you keep hammering it until it becomes funny again. And memes almost work that way too. I don't know if you remember the, there's a recent one with the woman from Real Housewives and she's pointing at the cat sitting at the other end of the table. Yes, I've seen that. Right. And there was a moment where I was like, oh God, this meme again. And it flipped around and then got funny again. And some of it is the execution. Some of it is finding variations on it. But, it, it, you know, we have a lot of fun with that when we're thinking about how to tap into the existing meme culture. And we actually, the technology that we use on the back end helps us do that because we can kind of see the half-life of these memes as they kind of trend and they, they get tired. And then sometimes they start to trend again because somebody found a way to recontextualize mm -hmm. it another way. All of that uses humor as an underpinning. What do you – this is such a dumb question, but I still think it's worth asking. What from your experience makes a good, useful meme that likely has a good half-life? <laughs> it's – you know, there are so many elements. You, you almost can't predict it, right? But what really works is finding the situational hook that recontextualizes what was originally happening. So again, if we use that, the woman pointing at the cat meme, those were two separate images that had nothing to do with each other. The The origin of the picture of the woman pointing was a Guardian recap from 2011 mm -hmm. online of this, this episode. The cat was a separate thing that somebody posted on Twitter. It was a picture of the cat sitting on the table. It was something like, uh, I, don't, I don't remember the caption, it was something like, you know, he he know like his snackies, right? right Something right. really dumb. <laughs> and some mad genius, like, you know, two years after these things were posted separately, said, I love putting these, you know, when I put these two pictures together, they're just killing me. Yep. And suddenly, boom, a meme was born. And it was that recontextualization. And that's also what keeps them alive is somebody finding a new context. The latest version I saw mm -hmm. was somebody put 
made the woman look like um, she was in Star Wars and made the cat look like Darth Vader. And she's pointing and saying, that's not the meme. And the cat is saying back to her, pray I don't change the meme again. Pray I don't alter the meme again. And I was like, oh, it's funny again. Like, great. Just recontextualizing it. Boom. It it got it, it tapped into a deeper vein of humor. Here's a question I've never asked before or heard anyone talk about. Most memes, not all, but most memes are effectively stolen copyrighted content mm, right? that isn't technically a parody legally, to my knowledge, because it's not really pointing fun at that thing. It's using that thing to point fun at it something else. So it's not actually technically falls under parody laws, as, as I understand it. And I'm not a lawyer. So my question is, how can, let's say, an agency like you employ a meme that you don't own, that image, sell that service to a brand and 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 be able to feel comfortable that, you know, everyone's been taken care of in terms of use rights? Do you have any sense of the legalities of using memes, sourcing memes? That's question one. And then a close behind that question is, do you have any sense of an opportunity or businesses out there that are partnering with content, uh, media organizations, let's say you're Warner Brothers of the world, and basically contracting them for the use of single frames and licensing that so that they can create and sell memes? Yeah, so um, we're very careful about this because of all the copyright issues. Like we would never do on behalf of a brand a, you know, paid for meme that was done as an ad where we use the woman pointing at the cat. Right. Because we don't own those images, it wouldn't be, you know, we we wouldn't do that. What we can do is either if they have uh, the rights to footage, and it is like a Warner Brothers or whoever, that we can do and we do it on their behalf all the time. Not specifically Warner Brothers, but studios and places like that. Uh, But the other thing that we're able to do is to create content that fits into meme culture um, and have it. So we work with creators all the time who, you know, we think about memes as being this found footage, but sometimes it's doing things like uh, on TikTok, having the rights to a song Mm-hmm. And coming up with a new dance to go along with that and will create with a creator something like that for brands and make sh- and, and in that case, we have the rights to everything. If we need the license and rights to a song, we do that. So we're very careful about that. Even what we do organically, you know, we'll repost sometimes really great content that we found someplace else. We always give credit when we do that because we want to be good Internet um, citizens. And to do that, you want to make sure that you're acknowledging if something's not your original idea, mm-hmm. here's where we got this from. So we have real rules of the road, both around what we do with brands, but also around what we do organically to make sure that the property people get credit and that brands are never in a place where they might have some kind of an issue. Gotcha. I mean, the other thing is there's also a whole class of content that we create for brands that don't necessarily rely on memes at all. So um, we've had brands come to us and say, look – you know, we really need somebody to help us understand how to properly run our social presence. Can you do that for us? 
and we will. So we have um, a brand where we are doing everything for them on Instagram, creating original content for them. We've actually created a uh, original show for them on IGTV to go along with that. We are, you know, also going to be bringing them to TikTok and creating a TikTok presence for them. And in those cases, we're creating images, we're creating videos, and none of it is meme content. But it is all vertical. It is all the kind of content that we know people respond to in a very strong way. Gotcha. Thank you. Uh, last question. Uh, Noah, you know, you mentioned music. And you're certainly involved with the music world. And, and uh, But you also deploy music as a piece of content or as a, por- a component of content uh, or to drive content. What's the thinking behind using something that's a recognized piece of music – versus discovery of something that you think can be the next recognized piece of music. (laughs) So there's two considerations. One is the cost of licensing popular music versus using an indie artist that may potentially be much less costly considering the wide deployment that you intend to use with it. And thinking about, we think this piece of music is special, could catch on. And that could make it even more shareable because people are like, oh, my God, this is amazing, right? And then there's the other side of it, which is this is just going to connect people with automatic uh, with people automatically. They already know this tune. It's going to have another, a whole other meaning. So I know there's no one answer to this. A situation's a bit of the boss. But how do you approach that? Well, so especially on a platform like TikTok, TikTok is so sound and music oriented. Uh, music is a huge part of the formula that we look at. So when we look to license something or we think um, that it might be really important to use a recognizable song, often that's because people on TikTok are already doing a very particular type of response to that song. So it makes sense for us to join in on that or to help a brand join in on that because it makes a lot of sense. It fits in with where that culture is going. Mm -hmm. And again, we can use our technology to see, oh, this is starting to trend. People are using, you know, Lil Nas X in this very particular way. And so let's jump in on that because this dance is perfect for this brand, right? But the flip side is we will mess around with songs that are not known um, but because it can really alter the mood of what we have somebody doing. Right. So there are times when we'll have somebody create something for us or we'll do something in-house and it's working. But actually, I'm thinking about something right now that we're doing for a major QSR client and this is for their own channels. And it's a beautiful, hyper-realistic drawing that we're creating a satisfying content Ooh. of one of their menu items. It's beautiful. And the first song we did to it was real chill. And it wasn't a well-known song, but it was like very chill. And and I said, let's see what happens if we use something that's more of a boom bap and have that kind of like breakbeat feel to it. And instantly the mood is altered. And it, but it was the right, it, it kind of took it to a different place. And sometimes it's as simple as that. And neither song is known. And the song may or may not become known. But if it does, it'll be because of the combination of the image and the song more than anything else. Great. Thank you. Uh, my my la- actual last question before we get into some personal questions is uh, elephant in the room a little bit coronavirus. How, if at all, is that driving? 
strategic decisions your organization is making, how you're communicating with brands, or where you are seeing clients that you're talking to or the, or uh, prospects you're talking to or existing clients, how that's um, transforming the decisions they're making, whether it be budget, whether it be creative. Uh, can you speak to there must already be ways that you're having to think about this? Yeah. So there are, there are a couple of impacts that we've seen for what we do. One is in a good way for us, we, we're really nimble. We create 8,000 pieces of content a month, which is an enormous, wow. yeah, it's kind of wild. That's a lot. That's really high. Cause we're able, we, our studios are in our, in combined with our offices and it's, it's really easy for us to turn stuff around. And we, we even will, when we are pitching, we'll make a piece of content to go along with the pitch. This is Okay. the first organization I've ever worked with where we can turn video content around that quickly. Yeah. So what we're able to do in something like this is to actually disperse our content creation because it's all made for vertical. Uh, we don't need, you know, a really heavy set of equipment to yeah. produce. Yeah. So we're able to kind of keep going. And that's been great because we don't want everybody to necessarily be mm. congregating all the time, right? So that's one impact is we're asking people to be a little bit more dispersed, but it's actually been a really interesting exercise because in some ways we're suited for that. The other impact is we we were hoping to do more experiential work this year, and the reality is we probably won't do that until the fall or late summer just because – it's we have to look at the reality that a lot of conferences and places where normally we would deploy something experiential may be canceled or moved. So we have to be really realistic about that. Mm -hmm. We were all going to be at South by Southwest this week. Not all, but, you know, yeah. uh, myself, a number of my colleagues, yeah. we had all kinds of things set up. I was actually going to be on stage uh, talking with one of our clients uh, at Electronic Arts, one of our favorite clients. And Obviously, that's not going to happen. So um, that impact is also substantial because I think just from a, a business standpoint, I, I we really rely on things like CAN and South sure, By. There's like visibility. That. There's an opportunity to reconnect with people. There's brands that you don't normally get a chance to be in front of. and So um, that's a challenge. But the other side of it is I think it means you're going to see people flocking to digital screens, not just to congregate from a business standpoint, yeah. but also to say – Okay, I got to de-stress um, and in a way that's good for us because I think that you'll see yes. more brands, you know, trying to figure out, okay, if people aren't yeah. outside and they're inside or they're in their homes and they're trying to, you know, these are places where they're going to be looking to de-stress and we can be there for them. Now, let me ask you something. If we're getting away from Gen Z for a second to the generations that may not be as glued to their mobile screen. Mm. All of the major metropolitan areas where people may be traveling less or less people are traveling frequently on, on public transportation, they rely – or in their cars. They rely on that mobile content consumption as one deployment of, of marketing and, and information. Those generations may not be on their mobile devices as much during this period as they normally are. They'll, they may still be watching TV or on their desktops at home, yep. laptops, but that's different than the mobile, mobily deployed. So how do, how do you think that is something that brands and your organization needs to be thinking about as you look at buys? 
uh, at this point, do you buy less mobile in these big metropolitan areas and pump that into other formats or what, what, where's that stand? Well, no, I wouldn't think about it as buying less mobile because I still think that for many of those people, they may not be using, you know, I like to, so what you described in that usage, especially for, um, older generations, I call that transition time where you've got people commuting and they're on their mobile device because they're kind of in commuter mode yeah. or they're they're transitioning you know they're 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 going to lunch and they're going to kind of check in and do that kind of thing True. but they may not be working with their phone at their desk although some people do um but or, or the bathroom or the right or the bathroom right big big time um so there's a particular type of content and there's a particular type of thing that they're seeking out at those times right but the reality is when people are trying to connect with each other at home and you want to reach out to your friends how are you what's going on people are still using platforms like Instagram to do that Facebook um that is still a huge huge part of how people do it i really don't think they're doing that on the big screen mm -hmm. so they may not be using it for for lean back you know i'm going to watch a movie or a tv show but they are still using it as a way to stay connected to the world around them so i don't think that's going to go away and in fact i think it's going to keep going up so if i were at a brand and trying to think about how to reach people across any age group I would definitely look at digital media as if not, you know, at the same levels, maybe even more so because that need to connect is going to drive people gotcha. to platforms like that. All right. Thank you, Noah. All right. Coming up, we're going to uh, hear a little bit from Noah, uh, a little less about Imagine, a little bit more about Noah as we get to the human side with some personal questions right after this. Monday? Well, you shouldn't have a bad Monday because you just downloaded funny people talking on your phone, right? So just click the play button. Wait, Danielle, Danielle. What? What's funny people talking? Oh, it's this podcast with, I mean, you're one of the co-hosts, Mark. It's oh, yeah. you and me and, and Elsie, our producer, she's there. And we have really cool guests on, like illustrators and comedians and actors. You should listen. Do you listen to your own podcast? I hear it every time we record it. It's a really good show. You should listen to. Uh, do you listen, Elsie? No. Typical. She, I know. Typical producer. You know who listens? All of our fans who love the show. I know we dropped it. Listen to Funny People Talking. Mm. It comes out every Monday on Mouth Media Network and wherever the best podcasts are found. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. All right, Noah, I've Ooh. determined you're human. Ah, thank goodness. So yeah. let's get personal. I, I, I got past your <laughs> captcha. It, 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 well, yeah, exactly. I always find that interesting, by the way, because it says, Click all the, for the image ones, click all of the stoplights or the crosswalks. And you know what? You don't have to click all of them. Mm -hmm. You just have to click one of them or two of them, and then it, it, it works, which is interesting to me. My favorite is the branded captions. Have you seen those? Like click all, click all the things Pepsi sign or something? Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. I've never, no, I have not seen that. That's smart, though. There will always be a way to brand or, oh, or boy, do an ad Oh, boy, ain't that the truth. Mm -hmm. Um 
Okay. I have a couple questions for you. The first is you like texture. You like food. I, I only say that because of what you brought in today, but I, I, I sensed that you enjoy that. It isn't just a functional thing. You appreciate things. So I'd like to ask you about something in your life. It could be as far back as childhood, if you like, that you recall that made a sensory impression on you that you still even carry to this day. It was a, a great smell, a great meal, um, a sweater your grandmother wore, um, a, a, a sand, sand you played in on a beach that whatever, it, art you touched. It could be anything. Can you think of something that even to this day still has just a, a, a really deep impact on you, that sensory impression? Oh yeah, I mean there there's so many things. I mean, um for me one of the things that even as a little kid that I always loved was was books. And there's something not just about um you know, the act of reading, but the physical act of holding a book, taking in the packaging of it. And um, there was a series of books. I'm a big design person. Uh, and even as a little kid, I was really into automotive design. Oh. And there was a whole series of books called World Cars. And they'd come out every year. And um, they were literally pictures and specs for every car made around the world. Okay? So this is kind of an obsessive like thing that for a seven or eight-year-old to be into. But what I loved was cracking open the book and the smell of the print because it was printed on really nice stock and it smelled so good. And the excitement when I would get this book for my birthday or for the holidays every year. And then the disappointment because I would literally devour this book in maybe two hours and then feel like, oh, that's it. Like I got to the last page already. Oh. Um, and it's like a really, <laughs> for me, it's very sensory, the smell of it, the feel of the gloss on the pages, the color section at the beginning where they had all the, the concept cars. Yeah. All of that oh, always yeah. still sticks with me. Yeah. <sighs> I love a good page turner. Yeah. I remember yeah. when I read Misery by Stephen King, I'd already seen the movie and I read it at stoplights in my car so that I could... Um, I just couldn't wait till I got to my destination. So I'd get to a stoplight. I'd read as many pages as I could, keep looking up the light to make sure it didn't change. And um, No, I love that. In, there's something I – I actually know someone who told me something about this. That for some people, there, there's actually something about touching the book that changes the way that they're able to um, absorb the information. Yeah. It is – it isn't – you know, it, there's actually a textural impact on the way their brain will process things by touching the thing that they're absorbing. I don't know what that is, but I think that that's, that's an interesting – and a reason why we may, as long as the resources are available in the world to make them, why we will not see hardcover books go away even if they're no longer made of paper as we know it. I'm, I'm thrilled that independent bookstores are having a comeback. Yeah. Um, look, I have an iPad. I have books loaded up on it, and I still find it helpful if I'm traveling, but I definitely feel like, you know, I also alternate with, with real books because I do feel like there's a difference in the way I process the information. Oh, yeah. And the pleasure of interacting with the object is really important. Speaking of enjoying automotive uh, stories and so forth, did you happen to see the, uh, the film Framing John DeLorean? 
No, that's the recent one that came out. Right? Yeah, and Alec Baldwin is in it yeah. and portrays him. But are you familiar with how this film is done? It's fascinating. No, I know the John Lauren story, and I thought this is on my list to see. because It's I, really yeah. good. I think it's really good. So it's it's a documentary. But what it is is they do reenactments with Alec Baldwin as John DeLorean, but they also remove the fourth wall and Alec Baldwin is talking to us mm. and we're seeing him behind the scenes filming these scenes and talking to us about portraying John DeLorean while they tell the story of John DeLorean. Um, it, it, is, it is a really interesting and unique approach to a documentary that I think was really – it created interest in a, in a novel way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think, I think just seeing um, the, the creativity in the documentary space in terms of how documentaries are, are, are being structured and told I think is, is fascinating to me. There's, there's, there's also a, a documentary. Did you see Casting Jean Benet? Yeah. Oh. So this is in that same vein where you're documenting the telling of the story yeah. as a way to tell the story. Uh, for those that aren't familiar, Casting Jean Benet tells the story of, of the Jean Benet Ramsey murder and investigation. And um, uh, by the process of casting the family and Jean Benet Ramsey herself for reenactments, uh, it, it's, it's similar to what they did with the, uh, the John DeLorean story. And it's the, both of these documentaries pretty interesting to take, not just because of the documentary and the story behind them, but the execution of them as a novel form of content in, or approach to content. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's something, it's harder to surprise people now. Yeah. And how do you tell a story that it, people want to follow, but also do it in a way where they're not sure what's going to happen next. Yeah. And for something like John Benet Ramsey, people think they know the story. Yeah. So how do you serve it up in a way where yeah. they're not going to feel like, oh, yeah, I kind of know what happens already? And that to me is is really fascinating. I mean, I even – I saw um, not a documentary, but I saw Uncut Gems finally. Oh, I um, want to see that. Which I thought was spectacular. But, you know, it was a great example of a movie where I genuinely – even when I thought I knew what was going to happen, it there was always a kind of curveball where I was surprised by the way something was set or where a scene went. And I think, you know, it's harder and harder to do that with audiences. But when you do, the reward is so great in terms of the, the enjoyment. Well, I think at this point with as many movies, scenes, scripts, songs that have been written and created – to still find something new to say and a, a new idea and to surprise audiences, I think you really get rewarded when you go, you thought of something new, especially in this day and age of remakes. Yeah. So, which speaks constantly to, we can't think of anything new. I appreciate the commercial viability of it. People are buying them, you know, they're seeing them, but okay. Final question. So much of your job, uh, your, you pitch, you're pitched to, and your job is to, in some cases, create pitches even if they're veiled. Yes? Sure. So what is a pitch that you heard? And I'll give you a choice. It can be the pitch that you've heard over the years that you remember that was so god-awful. You can't even believe the person had the audacity to, to pitch. And you can, you can mask the name or the product or whatever, of course. Or – I'll also give you, if you remember one that you're like, that is one of the best pitches I heard in my life. 
And I still think of it to this day and it guides some of the way I approach things. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll give you one that's almost a little bit of both. Okay. And I think the axiom for this is know who has the power to say yes okay. in the room. So there's a guy named John Steinberg. He'll be delighted that I'm mentioning his name. Hey, John. He hears about Shout it. out to John Steinberg. That's right. <laughs> um, and he uh, he's done a lot of things since then. Um, but right now, at, at the time this was happening, he was one of the leaders at BuzzFeed. When BuzzFeed had just started, it was all about lists and listicles and things like that. And it was about, you know, very custom content for brands. And they were just starting to get into that. So at this point, I was at the agency and I was connecting him with a very, very senior, really sharp, smart client at American Express. And she, as a client, was always looking to do things that were different, do things that were innovative. But she was also somebody who really wanted to feel like there was a good business reason to do that. And um, often she'd want to meet these new potential partners and you know, wanted to be wowed, but could also be really tough with them. So John, by the way, uh, if you know Cheddar, he founded Cheddar, which was recently sold. I don't remember who bought them, but but before this, he was at he was at BuzzFeed. So we go to the room, and John is a very intense guy, and my client, who is very elegant, came in, and John stands up, shakes my client's hand, and she says, "So." Why should we be interested in working with BuzzFeed? And John looks at her and he says, banner ads are shit. They <laughs> suck. They're garbage. Now, my agency was making tons of money off so, the banner so someone's ads. going, no. Every colleague of mine is going, what the hell is this guy saying? They're biting their nails. Where is this going? What's he going to do with this? Now, my client he got her attention. Like this was a very provocative thing to say because she was also responsible for a lot of the budgets that were going into banners. So <laughs> she looked at me and she said, go on. And he went ahead and eviscerated. When was the last time you clicked on a banner on purpose? When, all very reasonable and I think actually appropriate questions. Uh, and then flip that around into why you needed to look at custom content and what BuzzFeed did as a way to reach audiences with things that they'd actually be engaged with versus all of the chrome of that surrounds an article on other sites. Now, of course, fast forward five years, BuzzFeed is full of banners and doing all of the IAB ads that they didn't do back then. But at that time, it was both a terrible pitch from the agency perspective, because we're sitting there going, this guy just took our bread and butter and stomped on it. Um, but the client came away from it saying, A, that was audacious, and B, you know, yeah, if you really think about it, you can show me the metrics yep. about, quote unquote, how banner ads work. Yep. But really, you know, there's something missing. Well, thank you for sharing that. That was a really, really interesting story, and uh, I think a, a great, a great lesson learned there for for all. Um, which is, to me, part, maybe this isn't where you were going with it. Part of me is is don't think about what you think you should be saying. Understand what your client needs and go there in a pitch. Yeah. Uh, and I guess the person that took that leap, maybe they understood that at a, at a level that the other people hadn't brought themselves to understand. And that's why he felt he could take that risk. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really important thing to always think about because 
I'll often have a potential client or an existing client come to me with a project and they'll say, we want to do this. I recently had had a potential client come and what they wanted us to do was to grow their Instagram followers. And I think there's a school of thought that says, great, okay, let's go do that. But I said, well, why? Like, what are you hoping to have happen? And I'm sure the question was, what do you mean why? (laughs) That was the first, but then it was, well, ultimately what we want them to do is to, um, you know, buy the product and actually, you know, use it. So I said, well, you know, I know you're thinking about us in this particular way, which is to somehow drive people to your Instagram page. But we could actually cut out the middleman, your Instagram page, and do something much more direct, which tends to work better, will be more efficient for you, and will have a better impact. And that step back was really helpful because it reframed the entire conversation. And at the end of the day, meant that what we were doing was going to have a real business result and not just, oh, we went from this number of followers to that number of followers um, who may or may not actually buy a product because all we could do in that case is drop them off there. But you feel successful. Right. Yeah. Well, you've got a number and it's getting bigger. That's it. And, you know, I think these kind of numbers, I like to call them kind of, uh, they're like vanity metrics that um, don't necessarily mean anything. And, And I think a lot of the ad industry is built on that. And, you know, my hope is to get to a place where we're really talking about what a, what a, even if you're using a number, what's behind the number that actually connects people to businesses um, or to brands versus what allows you to, to say, okay, we reached this bar and then we exceeded it. Very good. Noah, how can people connect with you and with Imagine? So the best way to connect with me, um, first of all, I'm on Twitter. I'm a, I'm a disgustingly active Twitter user. So it's, <laughs> it's at Noah, N-O-A-H, Malin, M-A-L-L-I-N. We're also at uh, imaginemedia.com. Um, but uh, another great way to connect with us is if you go to our Daquan or So Satisfying, any of our pages on Instagram, on Snap, or on TikTok, we've got a way to reach out through those pages pages as well. Um, But please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. I'm very happy to direct message anybody who wants to learn more about what we do. Wonderful. And any final thought you'd like to leave behind uh, as you reflect on this conversation, the world we're in with content or anything else, uh, what would be a piece of wisdom that you love to you love to hang 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 the hat on with our our audience. So I've never gone wrong in centering anything that I do in content or that I work with on a team on what we want somebody to feel and what we want them to do at the end of the day. And if you stick with that idea of how do we want them to feel and what do we want them to do and what are they likely to do, you can't go wrong. Yeah. And it really helps to focus so much. And it seems simple, but it's really easy to forget, especially when you're working with brands and you get into the minutia of where the logo is and blah, 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 blah. But if you circle back around to that, that always sees you to the other side safely. Outstanding. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Noah Mallon, the Chief of Brand Strategy for Imagine Media, thank you for your time. Your insights, your wisdom, your humor. The slime. The slime, (laughs) of course, and the uh, milk bar treat, all of that uh, together for one great show and one great conversation. Thank Thank you. you. It was great, great talking with you and great to be here. 
continued uh, great luck. And thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, I hope you found it useful. Uh, we so appreciate you listening. And we'll see you next time. Until, until that next time, I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day. This has been Content Is Your Business, produced by Mouth Media Network, copyright 2020. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network and find prior episodes at contentisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening.